All right, well, open your Bibles to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, before we get into the sermon, I want to make one thing uh, abundantly clear, and that is that I am addressing believers in this sermon. There is sometimes confusion at some churches as to who church is for, who the sermon is being preached to. I want to be clear, I am preaching to believers in the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't say this to exclude any unbeliever here or any unbeliever listening online. In fact, I think that you should pay as close attention to this sermon as believers. Um, That said, I do want there to be zero confusion on this one issue. I am talking to Christians this morning, which is saying I'm talking to the church. Now, I say this because the subject that we are going to discuss this morning is quite simply faith. So we're going to talk about the kind of faith that we need when our circumstances are not to our liking. We're going to talk about the kind of faith that we need when things get tough and afflictions come our way. And we will talk about the testing of our faith, especially as it relates to temptation and sin. So if you do not have faith, your faith cannot be tempted, tested, nor would it be, uh, make sense to talk about what kind of faith you have if you don't have faith. Now, if you do not have faith, then I want to tell you one thing before we get into the sermon. And it is, of course, the gospel, the news from God himself, the good news, that he sent his son who took on flesh and became a man and he lived a perfect life so that he could take his righteousness and impute it to us. He then died a sacrificial death for those sinners so that they could be reconciled to a holy God. And then he rose from the grave, having defeated death, so that he can grant his children eternal life. Now, if you think that is good news, then you're absolutely right. But there is a question that you should be asking if you think that's good news. And it is quite simply, what should I do in response to the gospel? Well, the answer is simple, so, so simple that a child could understand it. You need to cry out to God, you need to tell him that you could never save yourself, and you need to ask him to save you. You need to acknowledge that you are a sinner who has lived in rebellion against him, and that you want him to forgive you and reconcile yourself to him, and then you must confess Jesus as your Savior and Lord. People ask me when I did that, and I say, I don't remember. As far back as I can remember, I knew that I was a sinner And I knew that I needed the Lord Jesus to save me. And so uh, the gospel response is succinctly summarized by the Lord Jesus in three words. So simple. A child could, could, uh, could respond. And it is this. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So if you do that, you can be assured that God has graciously indwelt you by his spirit. He has caused you to be born again. And he has gifted you with faith justifying faith. That is what the life of a Christian is all about, faith. And that's what this sermon is all about, because that's what our text is about, faith. So without further ado, here's our text, uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 5. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. 
For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and uh, our labor would be in vain. So in our text today, we learn a great deal, I believe, from Paul about faith. Um, As we have already learned, uh, Paul loves the church in Thessalonica a a great deal. And in today's text, Paul's love for the church, again, is front and center as he speaks of his concern for the Thessalonians. We learn of his love and concern for the church from his words, but we also learn it from his actions, which he tells us about today. But there's one thing I want us to think about as we read about Paul's love and concern for the church. There's one thing that I want us to think about as we work our way through these five verses. One thing I want us to consider as we seek to apply what we learn, and it is the right kind of faith. This is my subject this morning, the right kind of faith. So we will begin by looking at what Paul does in his present circumstances. We consider a resolved faith. And then we will look at why Paul did what he did as we consider a strengthened faith. And then finally, we will look at the primary reason why Paul is so concerned about the church as we consider a tested faith. So we'll think about a resolved faith, a strengthened faith, and a tested faith. Now, as we get into our text, we do need to briefly review Paul's current context. His current context is his separation from the Thessalonians. All that he has to say has to do with the fact that he is not with the Thessalonians. As you might recall, uh, along with Timothy and Silas, Paul was blessed to preach the gospel to the Thessalonians. You see, some of them respond as, uh, as, as, you, would, uh, as you would hope, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, uh, respond with repentance and faith. And many of them did, and thus became the church in Thessalonica. But while they experienced this great blessing of preaching and having a good response, Uh, they also had a negative response amongst some, and a mob formed and and, and, uh, who didn't like their message. And as a result, they had to leave Thessalonica uh, under the cover of darkness, in fact. Now, in light of that, at the end of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul speaks of his desire to visit Thessalonica. And and then he spoke of the reason why that visit had not taken place, if you recall, because Satan had, had hindered him uh, from that. So with that in mind, as we get into chapter 3, um, we, we consider first the faith of Paul. Now, we're going to primarily focus uh, in the second two points on the faith of the Thessalonians, but we begin by considering the faith of Paul uh, and his resolved faith, as he says in verse 1, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Now, as, as I just mentioned, Paul has told us that the reason they haven't gone is, uh, yet is because of Satan's opposition. But as you will also recall, if you were here last week, Satan only does what God permits. So Satan is not sovereign. God is sovereign. And we're going to be reminded of that when we get to verse three in our text this morning. For now, we just need to know that while Paul acknowledges Satan's part in his current circumstances, he also realizes that the situation he's in is due to the providence of God. And because of that, he finally resolves to not make the trip. When I could stand it no longer, you know, as I, as I mentioned last week, he tried over and over to make this trip. And now he says, when we could bear it no longer, uh, the pain of not being able to go, we finally resolved to be left in Athens. Uh, so Paul has a faith which is resolved to submit to the plan of God. You see, he didn't know, he didn't know if it was God's plan for him to go to Thessalonica or not. And so he tried and tried, and when he realized that he couldn't, he resolved to rest in the sovereign will 
of God, even when it concerns something which would have been good. So Paul knows that he is not God. He knows that his knowledge is limited. Unlike with God, his knowledge is unlimited. He knows that God will work through this bad situation to bring himself glory. And so because of that, Paul has a resolved faith, which is to say he trusts that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. So Paul is resolved to stay in Athens, which is where he is uh, uh, currently. Um, And he determines that God's will for him is to not return to Thessalonica right now. And this then leads to the decision he makes, which as he tells the Thessalonians in verse 2, is to send Timothy, our brother. Now, I think we should realize that this could not have been easy for Paul. Uh, Recall, as I just mentioned, Paul very much wanted to go. Uh, And now he's not only willing to not go, he is willing to send Timothy, who is a very dear brother to him. Um, And so he's willing to be without Timothy. I think this was a big sacrifice on his part to stay put, but send Timothy. He really wants to go, but now not only does he not get to go, but he has to be without Timothy and Timothy gets to go. Now, uh, I think the question that comes to my mind is why is it that Timothy could go, but Paul couldn't go? And quite frankly, we don't know with certainty, but as one commentator suggests, it was probably because Paul was the most recognizable of his traveling band of missionaries, and his presence would prompt another riot. So, you know, if Paul came into town, there's probably going to be trouble, but Timothy can probably sidle into town and not, not, uh, not garner as much uh, notice. Regardless of the exact reason, Paul could not go, but Timothy could. And so Paul was willing to be without his friend and his fellow servant in Christ for a time. And anybody who is in full-time ministry knows how important it is to have a friend in ministry close by. Um, Now, he sends, uh, as he says, uh, Timothy, our brother, and then he refers to him, to the Thessalonians, as God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Now, did you notice Timothy is called God's co-worker? Do you think that's something that you would refer to yourself as when you say, oh, I'm God's co-worker? I think that sounds uh, a a little, uh, in some respects to our ears, I don't want to say blasphemous, but odd to say the least, that that somebody could be God's co-worker. Because, you know, most often, what do we think of a co-worker as? We think of a co-worker as an an equal, right? Uh, Clearly, that's not what Paul means here. Timothy is not God's equal, but Timothy is God's co-worker, which is to say that God is working through Timothy, and so, so Timothy is working alongside with God, and God is working through Timothy in the gospel of Christ. Remember, you know, the, 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 the gospel is the power of God to those who believe. So it truly is the power of God at work. This is not to, uh, to uh, uh, boast in Timothy. It's essentially to, uh, to commend Timothy to the Thessalonians as one who is being used by God in the ministry of the gospel, which is exactly why they should receive Timothy with glad and welcoming hearts. I can only imagine should Timothy show up and walk through the door of the church in Thessalonica and they all go, oh, we were hoping for Paul. You know, but no, I I think Paul wants to uh, nip that in the bud. And so he he refers to Timothy as God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. What a great, great title. Now, as mentioned, uh, Paul most certainly would have accompanied Timothy if he could. Uh, But 
But Paul was determined to do what needed to be done for the glory of God and the good of the Thessalonians. He was resolved to trust in God and his perfect plan. And so my question to you all, to us all, is do you have a resolved faith? Do you have a resolved faith? Now, I I suspect that your response is, well, how do I know if I have a resolved faith? Well, I'm going to suggest that you think about how you respond when things do not go your way or when things do not happen the way that you think they, they should. How do you respond? Now, I'm not suggesting that you need to like it. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you should rejoice in undesirable circumstances. I don't see Paul doing this. Paul seems heartbroken that he cannot go to be with the Thessalonians. But what I'm suggesting is that when you find yourself in circumstances you don't understand or you don't like, do you resolve to trust in God and know that his perfect plan will be accomplished? Or do you complain? Or do you, do you, uh, uh, you know, uh, just, just uh, dwell on the difficult circumstances? Um, you know, poor me kind of thing. Who's the guy in, in Charlie Brown that's always walking around with a dust cloud around him? Pigpen, Pig right? Is that, that's the guy that's always down. Or Eeyore, right? Like, no, we need to have a resolved faith so that when things don't go our way, when we face afflictions, we trust in God and know that his perfect plan will be accomplished. And then, and then, and then, and this is, I mean, I'm not going to say this is more important. You need to have that resolved faith first. But then once you resolve to trust in God, do you then act based upon that trust in God? We see this with, with, with Paul. He's resolved to trust in God, and then he responds to that resolve by doing the next best thing which is to send Timothy. I mean, that is what living by faith is. It's to have a faith that is resolved to trust in God no matter what happens, to trust in God regardless of the circumstances, to trust in God, as Jerry Bridges says in his book, even when life hurts. A resolved faith looks to God as the sovereign and good God who works everything out according to his perfect will. This seems to be the kind of faith that Paul has demonstrated by his willingness to send Timothy to the Thessalonians. And it's the kind of faith that we should have because it is the right kind of faith. But why does Paul send Timothy? What is the reasons for which Paul thinks he needs to send Timothy on this visit? Well, there are a few reasons we find in our text. Uh, One we find at the beginning and one at the end. So the reason Paul leads with, he says, uh, we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. Now, I don't know. We don't really talk like that anymore. I would uh, suspect that some of you might mean, ask, what does it mean to establish and exhort you uh, in the faith? Well, as is demonstrated by several other translations, like the CSB, the NASB, the NIV, and the NET, uh, what Timothy is tasked with here is strengthening their faith and encouraging them. That's another way that those Greek words could be translated besides established and exhorted, as the ESV puts it. Uh, Strengthening their faith and encouraging them. I think we we understand what that means. Uh, The question we are faced with is, why does their faith need strengthened and why do they need encouraged? If Paul has sent Timothy to do this, then there must be some reason why they they need that. Um, and, and, And what I want us to see is that the Thessalonian circumstances demanded a strengthened faith for a particular reason. I mean, because if I, if I said to you, why does somebody need their strength faith in, uh, their, 
faith strengthened. I said strength faithened. Why does somebody need their faith strengthened? You might say, why don't they? Right? This side of glory, who doesn't need? Anybody here who doesn't need their faith strengthened? No, I'm afraid I'm going to do it again. I mean, of course not, right? Any Christian who's this side of glory, any reason why they wouldn't need their faith? No, they all do. But in this situation, there's a particular reason why Paul believes they need their faith strengthened. And we find it in verse 3. So he says, we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Now, just to be clear, when Paul says we, he's not talking about just Paul, Timothy, and Silas. He's talking about we. When he says that we, meaning us, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, and, and you all. He's talking about all, all, all of us. He says, we, we told you that you were to expect affliction. So Paul had warned the Thessalonians about afflictions. And he had even said that they were destined for these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. I mean, the question you have to ask is, who are you destined by? Uh, And you were destined by God for these things, which is to say that God has ordained such things. So the persecution that they were facing was according to God's perfect plan and was brought about according to his providence. And so with that said, Paul wants them to be prepared to stand firm in the face of persecution. He wants them to be ready so they're not moved when things get tough. He wants them to be set so as not to be shaken by their afflictions. And if that is to be, then their faith will need to be strengthened, which is why Paul sends Timothy to strengthen their faith. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, we talked uh, about the reality of persecution uh, because Paul mentioned it in chapter 2, 13 through 16. And we noted that if we trust in Christ and stand upon the promises of his word, we should be prepared, we should be prepared to be hated and harmed and shamed and ridiculed, even imprisoned or killed maybe because of it. This is what has happened in the past. This is what happened with Jesus. Both Jesus and Paul say, uh, you know, uh, you need to expect persecution. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Paul says to Timothy, all those who uh, desire to live a godly life will face persecutions, which means that we shouldn't be surprised. Instead, we should be prepared. It's not to say that we should pursue it. Um, It is to say that we should be prepared for it. Now, today we find out what to do to prepare for persecution. But... I, I want to do something different this morning. Uh, I want to take the afflictions mentioned in our text, which I think are specifically related to persecution, uh, and I want us to expand it to include all afflictions. So, so Paul tells uh, the Thessalonians that they should expect uh, afflictions, right? For this reason, uh, and all our... Uh, sorry, no, I got ahead. Um, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this, and the this is afflictions. So this morning, when you think about the kinds of afflictions we as Christians face in this life, I want there to be no limit. So think about the kinds of afflictions that we we face in this world, in this life, and, and put no limit on your mind. Let your mind go to every dark corner of your, of your brain and, and consider the afflictions that we face in this life. Some are very severe, some are minor. But let there be no limit. We face afflictions like uh, afflictions of a physical nature, 
uh, when we uh, have illnesses and diseases of many kinds. Uh, We often face afflictions as a result of the sins of others. We face uh, afflictions which arise because of bad decisions that we've made, maybe sinful decisions, maybe not. We face afflictions as a result of severe weather systems, uh, like tornadoes or hurricanes or snowstorms. Uh, We face afflictions of a financial nature sometimes due to the loss of a job or a bad investment, maybe. We face afflictions which come as a result of conflicts in relationships. And we face afflictions which come by way of loss, especially the loss of a loved one. Uh, We face afflictions from living under a godless government. I mean, these are just some of the afflictions we face. But when you think about afflictions this morning, I want there to be no affliction that is off the table. There are so many afflictions that we might possibly face in this life. And I want you to think about every possible single one. Now, you might wonder why I would take the time uh, to list these afflictions and then to encourage you to consider these afflictions. Uh, You might think it's kind of a downer, not really encouraging. I mean, I thought this was all about a strength in faith, right? And I mean, you might be right. Maybe I'm wrong here, but... I think that we must be aware of the many afflictions we face in this life if we want to be prepared for them. It will not help us any to look at life through rose-colored glasses. It will not do us any good for people to come alongside and say, there, there, it's all going to be okay. No, I think we need to face the afflictions head-on, acknowledge the afflictions head-on, if we want to be prepared for these afflictions. You see, there is something we need if we wish to face afflictions well. Something that Paul wanted the Thessalonians to have, something I want us to have, and it is quite simply, we need to have a strengthened faith. And I think thinking of these afflictions will make us come to terms with that, that our faith needs strengthened. Because I don't know about you, but when I think of some of the afflictions that we could face, that I could face, you know, the question is always, how, do you, how am I going to get through it, right? And you might turn to food. Sometimes that uh, is a pick-me-up. Uh, some people turn to uh, media, you know, distract you. Uh, you know, we can turn to all different things. Uh, but the reality is, is that the only thing that is going to help us in the midst of afflictions is a strengthened faith. Now, I need to say something here, and I I don't use highlighting in my sermon uh, manuscript, but I highlighted this. Big yellow highlight, big bold letters. There's something I need to say of supreme importance, something I'm going to address again next week, but I simply must address it this morning um, in this discussion about faith, and it is this. So, So please, you know, I know we have sometimes have trouble tracking and we're thinking about the drive home or we're thinking about lunch or we're thinking about whatever but i need everyone to pay very close attention right now you cannot miss what i am about to say here it is of the utmost importance and it is this when it comes to salvation that is to say when it comes to our justification the strength or lack thereof of your faith plays absolutely no part zero zilch nada Those with strong faith, those with weak faith, all with faith are saved. 
because our salvation is not dependent on the strength of our faith. And are we not glad for that? You have to realize this. The faith that justifies, the faith that saves is dependent upon the one who our faith is in. That is the Lord Jesus. So, so hear me loud and clear. When I talk about a need for a strength in faith, it, it, it is not the strength of our faith that saves us. It is the one who our faith is in. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. That said, while it does not play a part in our salvation, it most definitely plays a part in our sanctification, which is to say the strength uh, uh, of our faith will help us honor and glorify God better or or worse, depending on how strong our faith is, especially when we face afflictions. And in this life, we will face afflictions. We are most certainly not safe from all harms. As Greg Beale puts it in his excellent commentary on 1 Thessalonians, the question is not whether or not we will face trials, but whether or not we will be faithful in confronting our trials. That, that's good right there. Now, I want to be clear here, confronting trials faithfully doesn't mean that we will not struggle when afflictions come. Often people will say to me, but I struggle so much. And I'm always like, amen, that's great. The struggle, if there was no struggle and you just give in, then that's bad. But if there's struggle, then, then good. Rejoice in the struggle. It also doesn't mean that we won't hurt when afflictions come. We will experience pain in this life. And it doesn't mean that we won't wish that afflictions had never come. I don't think we should ever... <laughs> I mean, Paul does tell us to rejoice in our afflictions. I, I mean, I, I don't see how we be glad that we face afflictions, but we do be glad in how God works through these afflictions. You see, what confronting trials faithfully means is that we will seek comfort and help in God, pressing in to who he is, as noted, saving faith is not dependent on the strength or lack thereof of your faith. It is dependent on the one who our faith is in. I can't say that enough. But with that said, the strength of our faith in confronting afflictions and living for the glory of God is dependent on knowing the one who our faith is in. The more we know the one who our faith is in, this shouldn't that mean the stronger our faith should be? So I believe that those with strong faith know who God is as he has revealed himself in his word. They know that he is both the creator and sustainer of all things because they know of the aseity of God. I, I don't think a lot of Christians know the term aseity, but they know that God doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. They know that he has life and power in and of himself, that he doesn't draw power or get life from any source outside himself. They know that God is sovereign over all and that he is working out his perfect plan in this world through his providence, which is his governing of all his creatures and all their actions. They know that God is eternal, that he was the same yesterday and today and forever, that he has no beginning and no end. They know that he's immutable, that he never changes, that he's omnipresent, not confined by time or space, that he's omniscient, that he knows literally everything. They also know that God is love, that he is merciful and gracious. They know that God is holy, that there is none like him, that he is transcendent, exalted above all, yet he is also imminent, which is to say he is present among us. It is knowing these things and everything else scripture teaches us about God, which I believe will strengthen our faith <clears throat> and enable us to stand firm in our faith when afflictions come. 
Now, if you want to be prepared for afflictions, if you want your faith to be strengthened, there are some things that you can do, um, some things that you should do in in light of wanting to know more about God. And and, and there's at least four. Uh, Of course, the first one is to get into God's word more on your own with your family as a church. It's, It's through the word that God works to change us. We saw this a few weeks back. So get into God's word more. That is the first thing. Pray to him more. Now, um, oftentimes we think that prayer changes God, uh, but as I mentioned, God doesn't change. He's immutable, which means that uh, if prayer changes anybody, it changes the prayer. And so the the more you pray, uh, the more you recognize your dependence upon God, uh, and the more he will change you through prayer. Uh, Prayer changes us. God changes us as we pray. Uh, Also, worship God with his church more making use of the ordinary means of grace. These are ways by which God pours his grace out on his people, like the preaching of the word and the Lord's table. And then finally, pursue and foster more fellowship between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are stronger together than apart. And it is our responsibility as brothers and sisters to help each other know and understand God more. The fact of the matter is that some of us have strong faith. Some of us have weak faith. Uh, but whether you have strong faith or you have weak faith, you need your faith strengthened. It can always be strengthened, especially if we want to be ready and prepared for afflictions because strengthened faith is the right kind of faith. Now, I will just say one other thing. We often say we, we need to be prepared for when the afflictions come. Uh, that doesn't mean that if you weren't prepared and you're now currently in the midst of afflictions that there's no hope for you. Your faith can still be strengthened and you should still seek a strengthened faith even if you weren't ready for the afflictions that you have come in. God will always honor our desire and our pursuit of a strengthened faith. Because a strength in faith is the right kind of faith. Now, as we get into this last verse, verse 5, um, we've considered a resolved faith and a strength in faith. Now we look at a tested faith, um, as Paul has a serious concern for the church in Thessalonica, as he tells them uh, in verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, if you recall, uh, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, uh, Paul takes his purpose in ministry very seriously, which is to make disciples. This is why he preached the gospel. Um, With that said, Paul uh, has already mentioned the one whose very existence is devoted to keeping the gospel from being preached. He's talked about Satan and his hindrance of Paul's trip. Um, But here he points out that he's also concerned that Satan has mounted an attack against the Thessalonians. When he refers to the tempter, that is most certainly a reference to Satan, the the devil. So uh, Paul is very concerned about this real and present danger. And I think that when I thought about this, like Paul's fear is that the tempter has come in and tempted the Thessalonians. Satan has come in and tempted the Thessalonians to abandon their faith. And this makes good sense when we think about the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils, Jesus told uh, this parable, 
And if we think about this parable, and we also think about the fact that the Thessalonians only proclaimed their faith a short while ago, I think we will understand Paul's concern here, because Paul is, has a, a fear, he has a worry, but I think it's the right kind of worry, right? There, there's a right kind of pride, as I mentioned a while ago. There's a right kind of faith, and there's a right kind of worry. He's worried about the salvation of the Thessalonians. And I think that makes sense if we think about the soils. Let's think about that first. So there is a parable that Jesus tells about four soils, which is to say four ways that people respond to the gospel when it is preached, identified figuratively as spreading seeds. So the sower spreads seeds and the seeds fall on different kinds of ground. Uh, The four kinds of ground are the path, which is a hard packed ground, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, and then the good soil. Jesus explains these four types of ground. And as I read his explanation, notice that Satan, the tempter, plays a part here, as do afflictions. Jesus says, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have uh, no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then when tribulations or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful, unfruitful, sorry. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, uh, you may be aware of this, you might not, but Christians have long debated how many of these four soils were actually saved, uh, which I think is very strange um, because there is only one good soil, uh, and so I think only one of these soils represents the one who is saved. All the first three are, are not. Um, with that said, I think that there are two in particular, two of the three bad soils that Paul is most concerned that the Thessalonians might be. Uh, The first soil the seed falls on is the path, and it's eaten up by birds, which represents Satan, the great tempter who comes in and does what he does best. He tempts people to question God's goodness and salvation so that they will not trust him. Now, if you'll notice, um, Paul could also be concerned that they are the second soil because the second soil um, starts out well, Uh, responding to the gospel with great joy. But then when afflictions come, the people represented by this soil uh, fall fall away. Um, So so these two soils, along with the third soil, which represents those who start following Jesus, but then are lured by the things of the world away from the gospel, uh, they represent those who uh, hear the gospel and may have even appeared to start following him, but then they demonstrated that they were not converted because they stopped following Jesus. They stopped following Jesus, so they were not converted. And this is what Paul is concerned about, that some of the Thessalonians might have stopped following Jesus, which would indicate they did not trust Jesus. And of course, you know, there was no way for Paul to find this out unless he sent somebody, right? He couldn't just check online or he couldn't make a phone call. He couldn't, I mean, he could send a letter. This is the letter. But the only way to find out in that day was with a visit. And so one of the reasons Paul sends Timothy is because he's worried about their faith and he hopes to get a report that they have not succumbed to Satan's temptation to abandon their faith. Now, uh, you know, spoiler alert, as we'll see next week, uh, the news Paul gets is good. 
Their faith is genuine faith. The Thessalonians had resisted the temptation of the devil. They had proved their faith was genuine. But before we get to that, there's something that we must be sure to notice right now, and it is that our faith is sure to be tested. The Thessalonians' faith faith was tested, and, and, and and it appeared to be genuine and, and and keep in mind that this temptation that happens or this testing that happens is not so that god can see if our faith is genuine it's for our sake so that we can see that our faith is genuine it was james who speaks of the need to resist the devil who also said count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness now the devil does not want us to count it all joy when trials come The devil does not want us to have steadfastness. The devil does not want us to pass the test. The devil wants us to question God's love so that we will abandon our faith. The devil wants us to turn away from serving God to serve idols. The devil wants us to live for self. He wants us to live a life of sin, and he will tempt us toward these things. That is what Paul was concerned about concerning the Thessalonians. He's worried, I believe, in all the right ways. And like Paul was worried about the temptations the church in Thessalonica faced, we should be worried in the right way about the temptations that we face. The second we think we have nothing to worry about, that we are safe from sin, is the second that we are in trouble. Because as God tells Cain, it is then that sin is crouching at the door. So if we wish to be a healthy church, if we wish to be strong Christians, we must be well aware of temptation. We must call on God to keep us from temptation. Lead us not into temptation, we ought to pray. We must be vigilant in the battle against sin. The question is not whether we will be tempted to sin or not. The question is how will we respond when we are tempted to sin? How will we respond to the testing of our faith? If we want our faith to be found to be genuine, we must respond in two ways. Number one, we must resist temptation. And number two, when we give in to temptation, we must immediately confess our sin and repent of our sin and return to trusting in Jesus. A resolved and strong faith is a faith which is ready to be tested. It is a faith which acknowledges temptation and sin and is ready to stand up to it. It is a faith which is ready to repent when we sin. That is the right kind of faith. You see, the life of the Christian is a life of faith. It begins with faith as when God regenerates us and indwells us with his spirit, he gives us the gift of faith. That is the faith that justifies. But that's only the beginning because we are not only justified by faith, but our faith is also connected with how we live. As James tells us, if it's not, it is a dead faith, which is to say it's no faith at all. If our faith is not connected with how we live, It is a dead faith, which is no faith at all. It was the author of Hebrews who looked back through the annals of the history of God's people and 18 times in just one chapter tells us how the people of God lived and are to live by faith. And the kind of faith that honors God is a resolved faith, faith which leads us to trust God even when we don't get our way. It is a strengthened faith so that we stand strong in the face of affliction, and it is a tested faith, faith which leads us to resist temptation and repent of sin. That is the kind of faith that we learn about in our text. It is the kind of faith that we must seek to have 
because it's a kind of faith that honors and glorifies God because it is the right kind of faith. Let's pray.